Hope y'all are doing well. We are in a sermon series for the year called The Journey. Um, and each month we're doing a different book of the Bible. And we're actually reading through the entire Bible as a church. So if you don't have one of these, I commend you to grab one. They're right back there at the table. And you can see that there's a reading plan for you to read through the Bible, four different reading plans. And every six days, there's a place that you can take sermon notes. So grab one of these. Um, I'll put this one right here. You can just come steal this one. No one's written in this one. Um, I would say this. I would say this, however. Um, I wouldn't steal it, actually. You'd just be taking it. Um, I would say this. I, I, I found some that have writing, and some people have taken some great notes. I haven't read it. Just saw that there was writing, and there was, <laughs> there was no name. So I encourage you to write your name at the front so that, you know, when you leave it behind sometime this year, we'll know that it's yours. So write your name in the front so we can make sure we get it back to you. Anyway, um, so... I am ridiculously excited because today, in this, this month, we're starting Romans, but also ridiculously disappointed that I have to do five chapters of Romans in one sermon, and it's absolutely killing me because I like to go slow. We did the book of Matthew, if you weren't here, it took us 90 sermons to get through the book of Matthew, and so I'm looking at Romans here, and I, I couldn't decide between chapters one through five what you know, set of verses to preach through. And so I just decided I'm going to preach all five chapters. Um, not that it's going to be long, although my five-year-old right after first service, I went back to her. She goes, Dad, that was a long preach. Um, so um, I'm hoping that it's not too long of a preach for you um, today. But uh, you will see, uh, because Paul, he is amazingly smart as he wrote the book of Romans. He has laid out for us um, a pretty, pretty easy outline to see. So what I'm going to do is help you see in the first five chapters the outline that Paul is laying out in the book of Romans. So um, we are in the book of Romans, and sadly, I'm going to have to go through five chapters in one day So um, because there's so much in there, so much good stuff that we're going to have to bypass um, and hit the big point. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in together into Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your love and your mercy. I thank you for your word. What an amazing word from Leviticus last week, to Exodus before, to the Psalms, and to now Romans. Lord, your word is, your, it's, it's inerrant. It's, it's full of life. It shows us who we are. It, it <clears throat> convicts us. It trains us in righteousness. It does everything. So even in sermons, um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how eloquent I am or non-eloquent I am. That the only thing that's really going to cause anyone, any of us, to love Jesus, pursue after Jesus, is not whether I tell a good story or whether I tell a bad story, but if your word is presented word for word and explained and, and taught, the Holy Spirit takes that and changes. And so I pray, Lord, that I would be um, easy to understand, but more so, Lord, I pray that your word would do its promised work in our lives. Start with me, Lord. I want to love and treasure the gospel more than I ever have. I pray for us all that we would do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't have a Bible, you can look underneath you. There's these little blue and white ones. They're free for you. Keep it. Uh, take as many as you want. We, we get them really discounted, and we want to give them away. So use that as, as yourself, a gift for yourself or anyone. And we are in Romans chapter 1. So that's in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Fifth, sixth book. Six, I think that's right. Sixth book in the New Testament. So um, what we're going to be doing today and looking through Romans... and. Uh, perhaps you've noticed this before, but 
the letters of Paul in the New Testament are arranged, you know, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, GE Power Company, uh, on all the way down, is how I memorized it, uh, all the way down to Philemon. And the way that they're organized is from the longest letter to the shortest letter. Romans is the longest, Philemon is the shortest. And that's the way the writers decide to organize. They didn't organize it by date, they organized it by length. And so Romans is first in, in the letters of Paul. And the reason why is because it's the most thought, the reason why it's first and the reason why it's the longest because it's likely the most thought out book that he's written. So that's why I'm all geeky right now about Romans because like if there's any book about that Paul's written kind of explaining all the things of Christ in the gospel in, in, in the most detailed way, it's the book of Romans. So um, we are going to be in the book of Romans. We're going to be peeping over the shoulders of some people that I've been studying this week. Uh, nothing I'm going to say is going to be original whatsoever. Uh, most of the uh, things I got, I got from these particular people, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Douglas Moo, John R.W. Stott, and Tim Keller. Um, I will quote them as often as I take a direct quote from them, but really most of the ideas is just me organizing about 815 pages worth of stuff that they wrote on just the first five chapters that I didn't get to read all of, which kills me. Um, so uh, to organize it as much as I can and for us to be able to see what the first five chapters of the book of Romans is about. So... Um, why did Paul write Romans? Let's start with that. Why did he write Romans? Well, <clears throat> Paul was in the city of Corinth at the time on his way to Spain. And as he's on his way to Spain, he actually tells us that he wants to go to Spain uh, because he knows that there's, there's, those are kind of untapped grounds. And Paul's a big-time frontier missionary in that he wants to go places nobody's ever gone before and see who's there and preach the gospel there so that new people can come to know Christ. He's, he says that quite often, that this is what he wants to do. Um, and so he wants to go to Spain. And while he's doing that in Corinth, he wants to make Roman, Rome, because he knows it's a huge place, on his way to Spain. He can stop at Rome, and as he's on his way, let Rome, this big, massive city, kind of be a base of ministry that he can do ministry out of on his way to Spain. And so he writes a letter to the Romans, letting them know how he wants to come there. Obviously, it explains out the gospel for all those who are either Jewish or non-Jewish. Uh, he had just, for those who are Jewish, um, he had just had some some run-ins with these people called the Judaizers, as he wrote, in the, if you're familiar with the Judaizers in the book of Galatians and, and even in Corinthians. The Judaizers basically are, let's say Paul goes over to this particular area in the region of Galatia. He preaches the gospel, and they all become Christians, and then he leaves. And there were some people that would come in after Paul who were, they loved Judaism. And they said, oh, we're glad you love Jesus. We're glad that you're converted. However, in order to be a real Christian, you got to believe in Jesus and take on things about being a Jew, like circumcision, etc. Well, Paul hears about that. He blasts them and he says, if Jesus plus anything equals salvation, then that's completely wrong. It's Jesus plus nothing. That equals salvation. So the Judaizers were the one who kind of idolized Jewishness. They're the, one, they're the ones that Paul was addressing. And so he, he's addressing the Judaizers a little bit in this because they're kind of fresh on his mind as he wrote to Galatia and Corinth. Um, and he, he'll talk about that in chapter 2, uh, the non-necessity of circumcision for salvation um, or taking on or keeping the law. And so while he's writing this, uh, the book of Romans is kind of the, the fullest explanation of the gospel and how the gospel applies to everyone who would believe. The main theme of the book of Romans is justification by faith. Big word, justification. It just means, you know, as, as you saw in the video, we're trying to evoke 
courtroom senses in you. Hopefully none of you have been in court or going to you know, be in court soon um, for anything terrible. But in the idea of the courtroom is God's the judge. He slams down the gavel and you know you're guilty. Everyone knows you're guilty and you're expecting a guilty verdict. And he looks at you who are believers in Jesus and you know you're guilty. And he says, I'm going to call you innocent. That's, what's going, that's what the book of Romans is kind of evoking for you. The justification or the declaration of God in the courtroom of God that you are innocent, even though you know you're guilty and everybody knows you're guilty. And why is he declaring me innocent then? So that's what the book of Romans is going to unpack for us. It's that justification or the declaration of God that you're innocent because of your faith. And, and what's going on? Why is that happening? So let me read. I'm just going to do three. Um, Three uh, opening statements about the book of Romans by some of these, some of these commentators. John R.W. Stott, an Englishman. I, I won't read it in a British accent because it's not very good. But he says, Paul's letter, no, Paul's, letter to the Roman, Paul's letter to the Romans is a Christian manifesto. Manifesto is like a declaration of principles. It's a timeless manifesto of freedom through Jesus Christ. It is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. That's pretty awesome. Like, okay, I want to get in some Romans. This is what Calvin says. This is so good. When anyone, Calvin lived about 500 years ago, Reformation, same with Luther, he's coming next. When anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle or the letter of Romans, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of scripture. That's, That's quite an endorsement, right? This is what Martin Luther says. This is the best. I saved it for last. This epistle, the letter to the Romans, is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself in this epistle every day as the daily bread of his soul. That's You can't get a better ringing endorsement from Luther, from anybody, regarding the book of Romans. So it is, and it is probably one of my favorite books. It's amazing. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the first five chapters of the gospel. I'm sorry, of of Romans. Um, He's going to unpack the gospel for us. So just to give you a broad idea of how this is going to work. Don't don't flip through here, but this is kind of a broad idea of how it's going to work. He's going to tell us what the gospel is. He's going to tell us then, since you know what the gospel is, who needs the gospel. He's going to tell us when the gospel began. And then once we know that, when we get to chapter 5, he's going to tell us what does the gospel give you or do for you, if you will. What does it bring to you? Um, So what is the gospel? Who needs it? Um, How does it work? I forgot that. How does the gospel work? That's an end of chapter 3. When did it all begin? Chapter 4. And then we get to chapter 5. What does the gospel bring to you? So um, hopefully... Uh, this isn't just like, well, I already know this stuff. This is, this is repeat for me. I, I say this every week, but I want to make sure that you know this. Uh, if, you haven't, if you haven't ever been to Remedy or um, if you haven't been around this idea of what we call gospel-centered preaching, um, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. So as much as you would say, someone that's not a believer, they got to hear the, the good news about Jesus dying for them. We hold, and I think it's just as true, as much as we would all agree that unbeliever needs to hear the truth about Jesus and what he's done for him, the believer in Jesus with equal measure needs to hear about what Jesus has done for him lest they revert straight back to law keeping. 
Every seven days, our goal is to pour on what Christ has done for you, lest you become a legalist and think that you have to perform for God to have right standing. It's all because of Christ's work. So this sermon, though you are a believer for 40 years or a believer for 40 minutes or not at all, is for every single one of us because it's about what is the most important thing, the gospel. So what is, what is the gospel? Martin Luther says this, through, the gospel is through faith in Christ, therefore, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness and all that he has, all that Jesus has becomes ours. John Calvin says the gospel is, a man will be justified by faith when excluded from righteousness of works. He by faith lays hold of the righteousness of Christ and clothed in it appears in the sight of God, not as a sinner, but as righteous. So these, these are, you know, two historic reformers and what they say it is. We're going to hear how Paul explains to us what the gospel is. That's going to be in verses 16 and 17. But I want to start with a little bit about Paul himself. He, he explains a little bit about himself there in verses 1 through 6, 7. So um, notice here in, in verse 1, this is, I think, important. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, was set apart for the gospel of God. And you'll even see in verses 3 and 4, Paul's going to do a little bit of Christology. That just means the study of Jesus. We believe as believers that he's 100% God and 100% man. Paul's going to unpack that for us just a little bit there in verse 3 in regard to his humanity, his being 100% man, his concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, we believe he's 100% man and then his deity and declared to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul, interestingly enough, all of Paul's theology in Romans as he unpacks the gospel still starts with Christology. Everything starts with Jesus. Everything starts with Jesus. He is the centerpiece. And a lot of times in this gospel-centered, gospel-centered language, we can forget that it's really all about Jesus. It's, it's Jesus-centered and what he's done for us is the gospel, the good news. So Paul also talks about himself a little bit, that he is a servant and an apostle in verse 1, and that through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring. What does that mean then? It means to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This is what Paul has given his life work, is around the gospel to be a servant and apostle so that he can take this good news of what Christ has done to the nations. That's what Paul's work is. That's what really all of our life is. It's not just like that superhero Paul who puts on the cape and flies around and does three, three missionary journeys and gets killed because he's, he's the man. Actually, all of us should be taking the gospel to the nations. Um, in verses 8 through 15, he just tells us about how, how his, his goal is to preach the gospel, to sum it up. But he gets to verse 16 and 17 for us. And in verse 16 and 17, as I said, Roman numeral 1, you can go ahead and put it up. What is the gospel? Really, it's 1 through 17, but in verse 16 and 17... Paul's thesis is he's going to give us the, the gospel in a nutshell, if you will, in verses 16 and 17. And he tells us this. He starts off with something interesting. Remember, he's preaching to Romans. He's writing, writing this letter to Romans, Roman citizens, both Jew and Greek. And they're going to hear, more likely Greek, and they're going to hear this, this news as he unpacks it for them over the next few chapters. They're going to hear it in a certain way. Unbelievers who are Greek intellects, um, very smart people are going to hear this and they're going to say, that's ridiculous. So he's already, he's anticipating that they're going to think it's ridiculous and he's going to anticipate that they're going to say to him, you should be ashamed of yourself saying this. 
And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. You think it's ridiculous, and we're going to talk about why. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, because that, that's who God had picked from, from Abraham, um, Israel. Then also to the Greek. So to those who are Jewish and all the Gentiles. The gospel is made available to everyone. You think I should, I should think it's ridiculous. You think I should be ashamed for saying that, but I'm not. Now, we're going to peep over the shoulders of, of well, we're going to get to Keller. This is what Calvin says. Calvin, as he looks at I am not ashamed, Calvin says, Paul writing this is an anticipation of an objection by the Romans. For he declares beforehand that he cared not for the taunts of the ungodly. They're going to, they're going to mock him, the, those that aren't Christians, that he believes this. And he's going to say, I don't really care that you're going to say these things. And thus, as Paul is doing this, he provides for himself by which a way he proceeds to pronounce an eulogy on the value of the gospel, that it might not appear contemptible to the Romans. So they think this message is contemptible, and he's going to explain to them why it's not. Tim Keller is reading this, and he says, he's got four things that he says, these are four ways the Romans are going to think that this gospel is contemptible, and why Paul says, I'm not ashamed, and why the Romans think Paul should feel ashamed. He says there's four things. Number one is that it's free. The Romans think, Paul, you should be ashamed by saying this gospel. You're saying it's free. Keller, the gospel, by telling us that our salvation is free and not earned, is really insulting. It tells us that we are such spiritual failures that the only way to salvation is for us, for it to be an absolute, complete gift. This offends moral and religious persons who think their decency gives them an advantage over less moral people. And so when the Romans hear that, they say, Paul, you should be, you should be ashamed of yourself. He's like, I'm not. It's totally free. The next thing is not only that it's free, that he should feel, they feel contempt, the Romans feel contempt towards Paul, likely because it all, this gospel also tells them that they're wicked. Keller, this gospel tells us we're wicked. The gospel, by telling us Jesus died for us, is also very insulting. It tells us that we are so wicked that only the death of the Son of, the Son of God could save us. This offends the modern cult of self-expression and the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity. Now, we have seen with our own eyes how humanity can be good. They're, they can do some pretty amazing things. However, the innate goodness is, is a farce. We're all born in the line of Adam, therefore we're all wickedly depraved. So, the next thing is this. They feel contempt towards Paul, the Romans, because... Um, Paul's telling them that being good doesn't save you. Keller says, the gospel, by telling us that trying to be good and spiritual, he tells us that the gospel tells you that's not enough. It insists that not any good person, but only those that come to God through Jesus Christ will be saved, not just good people. As a matter of fact, good people won't be saved. Um, this offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God in his own way. Because we don't like losing our autonomy or you know, our, our governing of ourself. The next way that the Romans feel contempt, contempt towards Paul, and I think this really applies to us, is that you have to become a suffering servant now. Notice what it says there at the very end of 17. The righteous shall live. So it, it now gives us information on the way our life is supposed to be lived differently. Keller says, the gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus' suffering and serving. And that following him means to suffer and serve 
with him. This offends people who want salvation now to be an easy life. This offends people that want their lives to be safe and comfortable. So the Romans are hearing this gospel and they're like, Paul, you should just be ashamed of yourself by saying it's free, by saying that we're wicked, by saying being good doesn't save, and by saying that now we have to become suffering servants. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel at all. And here's why. He's going to list for us now in verse 16 some characteristics of the gospel. There's some things that you should notice regarding the gospel. Notice this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. So the first characteristic that you should note, this will not be on the screen, is the effect of the gospel. The effect of the gospel brings to you and me no shame whatsoever. Not just in what Paul's saying, that we have no shame in its message. Well, I'm not ashamed of its message. I didn't make it up. God did. However, there's more into the shame. It means that in regard to your sin, you do not have to feel shame. Let's try to, with all of our mind skills, <laughs> try to feel the truth of this. We, we do some pretty wretched sins. We all can admit that we've committed sins. And it absolutely freaks us out to think, if these people knew the sins that I did, their view of me would just be so like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you did that. And that, that feeling that we have regarding what they think is shame. So the gospel's telling us this. If God himself, God himself has said, I have said you're forgiven of that, you don't need to feel shame. God himself has said you don't need to feel shame. Well, then what does that inform us in regard to our, our kind of misunderstanding of how we think people think? In other words, we don't have to fear the shame of other people and what they think about our sin. If God has already said, you don't need to feel shame, well, then you don't. And no matter what people might think, you don't have to be scared. The best thing, I've heard someone say this, I don't know, 20 years ago. He said, one of the best things that could ever happen to your life is that whatever you, you know, your most horrible sins were on the five o'clock news one day. Because then you got nothing else to lose. Like, you know everything. Everything's forgiven. I could absolutely live without any fear now. You know everything. I can't hide it. So, all right. Well, I can live free now. I don't have anything to fear or be shamed about because you already know it all. And if God has already said that you have no shame, then a characteristic of the gospel is that the effect is that it destroys shame. You should feel no shame regarding sin that's been forgiven. The next characteristic of the gospel is this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. So a characteristic of the gospel is that the gospel is a living force. It is power. Not it has power. It literally is power. Tim Keller says this. This is so good. Oh, this is so good. The gospel appropriately is a power. He doesn't say that it brings power or it has power, but that it is actually power. The gospel message is actually the power of God in verbal cognitive form. It lifts people up. It transforms and changes things. When it is articulated or reflected upon in your own mind, the power of the gospel is released. The gospel's power is seen in its ability to completely change minds, hearts, the orientation of our lives, the way we understand and comprehend everything that happens, the way people relate to one another, and so on. But most of all, the gospel is powerful because it does what no other power on earth can do. 
it can save us, reconcile us to God, and guarantee us a place in the kingdom of God. The gospel, a characteristic, is that it is a power itself, and that whenever it's reflected on or articulated, that power is released. Think about this. As you say the gospel to people, as you say the gospel to yourself or to others, literally, it is power. It's not the Holy Spirit. Don't confuse. It's not God, but it is power. That's a remarkable characteristic. So you, you want someone to be a believer. The Bible is telling you that there is an amazing power released when you tell them the good news of Jesus. You can't persuade people to come to know Christ. I can't persuade you to trust in Jesus. But I can tell you the gospel, and God has promised that that message in of itself carries with it some crazy weight that it can change their heart because the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's, that's crazy, right? Crazy characteristic. It has power. The message itself. Also, a characteristic is the scope of the gospel. Notice who it goes to. The power of God for salvation to everyone. To everyone. The scope is this. The gospel can save anyone at all. Anyone. You think you're, you know, out of the realm of God's forgiveness. Wrong. (laughs) The gospel tells you that the scope is as broad as you can ever conceive. Paul's actually going to unpack that in chapters 2 and 3, of who those people are. No matter, he, he likes to talk about un, not just unbelievers, but he likes to talk about unbelievers in kind of two categories. We'll get to that in a second. But the scope of the gospel is anyone. But the next characteristic is the condition. So the scope is everyone, but the condition is belief. Look what it says. So the next characteristic is the condition. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone. Here it is. Who believes. Here is, in this particular gospel in a nutshell, Paul's little thesis in sixteen seventeen is the first explicit statement that Paul makes in, in Romans. And the only way to receive the gospel and power is faith. Faith is the connection to the power of the gospel. Therefore, in this particular verse, Paul here is telling us that the gospel's power, the gospel's power is both limited and limitless at the same time. Limited because it's limited to those who would believe. But for those who will believe, it's limitless regarding the grace and the forgiveness that flows to you regarding all of your sin. So the power of gospel is limited to those who believe. But for those who do, it's absolutely limitless. This is crazy. This is amazing. So that's the characteristics of the gospel. Now in verse 17, it's going to tell us some content. It's going to tell us some content of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 17, it says, For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. So the content of the gospel is this, that God, this is the first piece of the content, is that God provides for us now perfect righteousness. Righteousness in, in, in the courtroom of God, the declaration of justification. Innocent, you're righteous. This is a, a positional word. This is who you are positionally. It, regardless, by the way, this is just a side note. Um, irregardless, not a word. Regardless, it's just regard, regardless of how you feel. 
I hear people say it, I'm like, no, not a word. Anyway, so regardless of how you feel, regardless of how you send it up this day or how awesome you think you did. You did everything perfect today. You didn't cuss at the driver on the way to church. You, read, you got up at five because the time changed. You're like, forget it. I'm getting up any, early anyway. I'm reading my Bible for three hours and journaling. I'm going to write a whole commentary on rooms before church. Like, you had that day, and it's only 11-something. Regardless, the righteousness is giving to you. It's not your own. You didn't earn it. This is a positional word, regardless how you feel, that you now have right standing, no debts, no liability towards the other party are counted against you. It means that you are now acceptable to the other party, God, because there is no record against you that jeopardizes the relationship between you and God. This is what we're talking about, righteousness. It means that you now have right standing with God and that you can receive this righteousness from God. It means that you have an intact righteousness because you've received it for what Jesus has done for you. This righteousness has now been given to you. So the first content or first piece of the content is that God provides for you a perfect righteousness. Luther was converted under this idea in verse in chapter 117 and as you get into chapter 3. Luther lived 500 years ago. He was a Catholic um, and then he became a monk, kind of started the Reformation. If you're not familiar with that, you know, Google Martin Luther later. Um, he, he, he not, not so loved by the Catholics. Um, but Luther, he's... He's a very vulgar writer, but he just lays it on the line and tells you how it is. This is what I think. Um, if you want to read some vulgar stuff, th- read what he wrote uh, regarding Erasmus' argument. Um, anyway, I'm getting way off subject. So here's Luther reading 117. And as he's reading 117, he thinks to himself, I labored diligently and anxiously as to understand Paul's word in Romans 117, where he says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. I sought long not anxiously for the expression, the righteousness of God blocked the way that I could get in because I took it to mean the righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals with, with us righteously and punishing the unrighteous. So as Luther, 500 years as a Catholic, he, he believed that the only way I can have right standing with God is by going through these rote exercises and doing these things. And the problem is, no matter how hard I try, I've got all these big, fat, juicy sins I keep committing. And these things don't seem to make me feel better. And I don't feel like God is just kind of overlooking those things and be like, oh, you're just so good at stuff. I'll just throw those things out the window. And so he reads this righteousness of God, this righteousness being revealed. He's like, the only thing about righteousness of God makes me feel really guilty. So this is what he says. My situation was that although as a monk I was impeccable, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in my conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit as a monk would assuage or change the wrath towards God or assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Luther's just dead honest. Wouldn't it be great that we were dishonest? This is, what, this is what Luther says. I couldn't stand this, this God of Romans, but Paul I liked. I kind of liked Paul. And this is what he says. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what... In other words, God scares me, not so happy about him, but Paul I liked. He seems to like God. Why? Why does he like God? I mean, righteousness, and I'm like guilty as all get out. Why does he like him so much? So he says, yet I clung to dear Paul, and I had a great yearning to know what Paul meant. Then I grasped, grasped 
that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. So the righteousness is not that he's angry. Instead, it's something that he gives to you. He calls you righteous. That's that first piece is that God provides perfect righteousness to you. And this is what he says. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. When I saw the difference that law is one thing and the gospel is another, I broke through. And as I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my dearest and most comforting word so that this expression of Paul's came to me to be a very truth, a gate of paradise, the righteousness of God given to you. Keller expounds on this a little bit better for us to understand. This is where it gets so important. Keller says it's quite important to realize how much more is being promised here when he said the righteousness of God than just mere forgiveness. So think of it this way. You and I, all of us who are, who are humans, are wretched, just wretched sinners. And forgiveness takes us out of this realm of forgiveness and moves us over here into to neutral zone. I'm not, I'm not a sinner anymore because I'm forgiven, but I'm not like God. This is what Keller says. Many people think that Jesus died merely just to forgive our sins. Our sins were laid on Jesus, and when we believe, we're pardoned from those sins. That's true, but that's only half of salvation. If that's all that he did, then all we would receive then is just kind of a white slate clean. But that's only half of it. Not only are we forgiven sin, this is what he said, but here... Paul tells us that we're not just declared not guilty or our sins are forgiven, but now we're also declared perfectly righteous. You move out of neutral zone over into here, which is God looks at me and says, not just forgiven, but now you are just as righteous and perfect as Jesus. What? You're in the courtroom. There you stand. Bang! Innocent. Not forgiven. Innocent. Why? How? How is this? Well, the second piece of the content of the gospel is, for in, the, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, received to you from faith for faith. In other words, it is received by faith. This is how, for those that have put their faith in Jesus, the gavel can bang and though we're all guilty, he can look at you and say innocent. I want to be really clear what I mean by belief slash faith. Same word in Greek, pistos. I want to make sure that we all understand what I mean. When I say belief, I don't mean belief that God exists. That's not what I'm saying. That's part of it. You know, that's the, that's the first rung. <laughs> but there's, there's more to it when we're saying. So I'm not just saying belief means belief that God exists. That's not in it in its fullest. I'm not also saying in its fullest, that it's belief that there's a man named Jesus that died on the cross and rose from... I believe those historical facts. Yes, bud. I believe that God exists, and I believe the historical facts that a man named Jesus died and rose from the dead. Again, that's not in its fullest what we mean. What we mean by saying belief, by the gavel hitting and saying innocent is, my belief is that since Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, that should have been my death. And all of my sin was put on him, and he went to heaven. Therefore, all of his righteousness is given to me. And I, and this is what we mean by belief, I am 
banking everything on that. That there is nothing that I can do and there's nothing that I can't be forgiven for. My righteousness, my right standing before God, I'm banking on everything that it's all because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and that he has, as this said, given me my righteousness now. He has declared it to me. I believe, yes, and I'm banking on the fact that my belief in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for me gives me his righteousness. That's what I mean by belief. So the second piece of the content is that it's received by faith. And when that happens, it's permanent. And it's only and exclusively by faith. Nothing else. That's the second piece of content. The third piece of content is that it results now in a new way of life. Look what it says. For as it is written, the righteous shall, I want to keel that word, live by faith. The result of the gospel is that now it means you and I who are in Christ must live a different way of life. This is no, okay, yeah, that's good. Do what I want. It automatically results for everybody into living a new way of life. Let's be careful because you say, but I keep sinning and so that must be in the old way of life. Yes, you do. And so do I. And we will keep doing it. Quit navel gazing and look to Jesus. Your righteousness has been given to you already. So the new way of life is not dwelling on and dwelling sin. Certainly it's killing, but my right standing is not like, oh, I sinned again. Instead, it's, yes, I'm going to kill it, but my right, I, I don't look to myself anymore. I look to Jesus. The gospel constantly reminds me my entire life, the, way, the new way of life is looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus. Every day I go, looking to Christ, and that's where I get my righteousness. So the third piece of content for the gospel is that this reception of it results in you and I to living a new way of life every day, reorienting yourself around the gospel and what God has declared of you, reminding yourself every day what he's done. That's why it's so necessary just for the unbeliever to hear it, as we would all agree, in equal measure that the believer needs to hear the gospel because you and I, if we don't reorient ourselves around this truth, will immediately revert back to thinking, oh, I didn't read my Bible today, God's mad at me. I just feel so distant. This isn't gospel. So the piece of the gospel that I want you to see here, the third piece of the content is that we have to live now a new way of life. So at the root now of the gospel is pointing us to two kinds of people. As I said, Paul likes to categorize unbelievers and two different people not just oh they're unbelievers and I, when i say unbeliever i mean not in an optimistic optimistic sense not yet believing in jesus you don't yet believe in jesus and you're one of these two people paul puts them in two different categories the first category are the real wretched sinners the pagans the ones that just obviously you know the the, the people that they do all oh, you know they did all this stuff they're really really bad and then there's the second category which thinks that they don't do any of those things. I mean, they never, ever do outward bad things. But they think because they're so good that that's what makes them close to God. And Paul is going to address both of them. So, in the first uh, part of, cha- of chapter 1, who needs the gospel? Well, that's Roman number 2. Who needs the gospel? The first people that need the gospel, uh, letter A, I think it is, pagans and licentious. Those are... They do these, all these outward sins, and we just know those things are just really bad. So, 
That's explained for us in verses 18 through 32 in chapter 1. So the rest of chapter 1 is explaining to us who they are, what they look like, and they obviously need the gospel. So here is what they look like. Um, It says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed, and this is no accident, as it says in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed to believers, to unbelievers, the wrath of God is revealed. And so you have the wrath of God revealed to them. Um, They suppress the truth. In verses 20 and 21, it, it says that they knew God exists, and even though they know God exists, they still continued in their depravity. They didn't care. Um, it tells us also in 24 and 25, it says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is, forever blessed, who is blessed forever. Amen. So this is regarding those those obviously sinful people. They, they live it just way out loud and everybody knows that they're sinners. They need the gospel. Paul wants us to recognize, and even in 24 and 25, they reject true worship of God and then construct false worships of created things. And it tells us, he gives us just a big description of the way they live in 29. Now this isn't exhaustive, but it's a pretty big list. It all, I, I can't think of anything else that would go in there. But this is the live it out loud sinners that perhaps... Perhaps that's you, but this is what it says. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. This is an interesting insert in this, in this phrase, in this entire list. Disobedient to parents. He, he equates that with the rest of these. Back to the, what seemingly would be the harsher list. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Oh, you're a wicked sinner? Let me encourage you in doing more depravity. That's, that's basically what, that's a list of what it looks like. That's the pagans. That's who needs the gospel. They are in desperate need of the gospel. And Paul says, all this is true of them, and they need to hear about Christ. So that's what the pagans look like. There's a guy named John Bunyan that kind of put himself in that category. And he, he explains his life living in this particular way. Now, if we knew him because he lived so long ago, we'd say, what are you kidding me? You're on the other side. But he put himself in that category. And this is how he explains his life and coming to know Christ. He says, every little touch would hurt my tender conscience. But one day when I was passing through a field, suddenly I thought of a sentence, your righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of faith, I saw Christ sitting at God's right hand. And suddenly I realized there is my righteousness. Wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say, where's your righteousness? For it was right before him. I saw that my good frame of heart could not make it my righteousness better or my bad frame of heart could not make my righteousness worse. In other words, all the sins that I had committed never ever could take away the, the declared righteousness of God to me. As bad as you think your sin is, that you could never be forgiven, that you fall on that list of 29 through 32 in chapter 1, he's saying you're never out of the reach of the forgiveness of God. Now my chains fell off indeed. I felt delivered from slavery to guilt and fears. I went home rejoicing for the love and grace of God. Now I could look from myself and all the things I've done to him and realize that all those weak character qualities in my heart were like pennies that rich men carry in their pocket. Pretty much pointless, basically. When the gold safe, gold is safe under lock and key, Christ is my treasure. Christ is my righteousness. Now Christ was my wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and salvation. 
So if you feel like your wicked, depraved heart is just so awful that you can never be forgiven, this is telling you that the gospel is absolutely for you and there is no limit to the forgiveness of God. Now there's another category of unbelievers. First we see who needs it, pagan and licentious. The next one, you can go ahead and put it up, is the religious and the moralist. These are the people that don't do anything externally bad. These are the people that never ever seemingly get it wrong. They're the people that, you know, always vote Republican, if you will. (laughs) They think that just because they do certain things that God looks at them and they're like, oh, you are just awesome because look at all the ways you keep the rules. Paul is going to address them in chapter 2. So here's the gospel. Who needs it? The unbelievers, you know, wicked people need it in chapter 1. Who else needs it? The religious people in chapter 2 and three, verses 3, 8. Here's what they look like. They think just because they keep all the outward rules that God thinks they're awesome. In the South, this is especially clear to pour out. Because here, you know, I'll preach to the choir and everybody, amen, yeah, those wicked people need it. But as we get in here, if you've been in church your whole life, you'd never think that maybe you need the gospel. Here we're going to see that it's the outward rule following that doesn't save either. So in two, I'll just do it real fast. In in chapter two, verses one through 16, um, to contrast chapter one, they didn't know necessarily much about God. They just knew that he existed, but they didn't know much else. In two, one through six, Paul goes out of his way to say they had a knowledge of the things of God. And what they did, verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, there it is right there. They're relying on doing stuff as a means to have a right standing with God. As long as they rely on their religiosity instead of Jesus, then they'll think that they're saved. It gets specific in 25. This is where he addresses those Judaizers. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So in verse 28, you can see, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical. And then 29, he just explodes. It just destroys this idea. If you think that the way you live on the outside is what gives you right standing with God. He destroys it in 29. But a Jew is one inwardly. In other words, a Christian is one inwardly because he's believed in the gospel. And it says, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. In other words, the outward forms of circumcision doesn't save, but having your heart changed by the gospel and belief in Jesus, that's what changes you. So he just destroys this idea. David Brainerd fell in this category. He said that he thought his religiosity is what made him right with God. This is how he explains his story. He says, when I was about 20 years of age, I was engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I became strict, watchful over my thoughts, words, and actions, and thought I must be very seriously religious because I considered entering into the ministry. I spent much time every day reading my Bible and praying and gave great attention to the Sunday sermons. That's awesome. That makes me feel good that he did. I'm just kidding. Um, In short, I had a very good outside and trusted entirely in my religious duties, though I was not then aware of what I was doing wrong. So this is just pray, read the Bible, make sure I don't cuss, make sure I follow all the things, watch my words, watch my actions, don't go to rated R movies, yada, yada, yada. Though often... I confessed to God, and, and he even says, I even confessed my sin and repented because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. 
Though I often confess to God that I, of course, deserve nothing, yet I still harbored a secret hope that recommending myself to God by my duties and all this morality. In other words, I was really pursuing Jesus. And as I really pursued Jesus, I was just kind of secretly hoping, God, look how I pursue you more than any of these other guys. Doesn't that commend me higher? Doesn't that make me awesome? Doesn't that make me have a right standing with you? Look what he says. Let me say this. None of us will likely ever pursue Jesus like David Brainerd. This dude was amazing. Anyway. Yet I still harbored a secret hope of recommending myself to God by all these duties. When I prayed affectionately and felt some melting of my heart to him in love, I hoped that God would thereby be moved to care for me. So I thought that through my repenting and praising him and melting him and having my heart melt, I could make good steps toward heaven. When my heart seemed full of love and faith, I felt that God would be affected by my heart rather than Christ's death. And I, he would hear my prayers because of their sincerity. In other words, I healed myself with my duties. I told myself, God must accept you now because look at how wholeheartedly you serve and seek him. That's not the gospel. God accepts us because of Jesus. That's it. This is so subtle, isn't it? Now, here was the problem. The more I tried to love God with all my heart and soul, the more I saw how little I really loved him. The more I sought a soft heart, the more I, I felt I had a hard heart. That, and I saw my, how hard my heart was. I supposed it must be softened. And I supposed it must be softened before Christ would accept me. One night, in, I remember in particular, when I was walking alone, I had such an open, I had opened such a view of my sin that I feared the grounds would cleave asunder under my feet and become my grave. I saw it was impossible for me after the utmost pains to answer. The, the, the demands of God's law. I saw it condemn me for my selfish and angry and fearful and envious and lustful thoughts, which I could not possibly prevent. Then, after considerable time spent in such distress, one morning I was alone and I saw that all my contrivances and projects to effect or procure or grab salvation from God were utterly in vain. I had thought many times that the difficulties were very great, but I, now I saw them in a different light, that it was totally impossible to do anything towards delivering myself. The tumult that had been in my mind now quieted. I saw all that my prayers and all my repentances and all my feelings and all my obediences had not been in the least upon my obligation to God. In other words, I didn't do them for God. I did them for me to bestow salvation on me. Then I realized why they were of no avail. When I had been fasting and praying and obeying and I thought I was aiming at the glory of God, but I was doing it all for my own glory so that I could feel worthy. As long as I was doing this to earn my salvation, I was doing nothing for God and all for me. This is pure religiosity. And Paul addresses this in Romans chapter two and three. I realized that all my struggling to become worthy was an exercise in self-worship. And I was trying to avoid God as my savior and try to be my own savior. I was not worshiping God, I was using him. Then at that time, the true way of salvation opened to my mind. I saw so much of its wisdom and suitableness and excellence that I wondered how I was ever so blind to it. I wondered why everyone did not see this way of salvation, not by my own contrivances, but entirely by the righteousness of Christ given freely to you because of faith, not because of what you do. 
I felt myself in a new world and everything about me appeared with a new different aspect before God. In other words, you can't read the Bible enough to make him happy. You can't go on enough mission trips to make him happy. You can't give enough money to make him happy. All these things that you're doing end up just being pointless if you think that's what's going to give you the right standing with God. They're not bad things. They never will give you right standing with God. Only the righteousness of God given to you, that's what affects the way you live. Now you do those things in glad-hearted worship and submission to him, not because you need a right standing with God. And Bunyan figured this out. Now, Paul, when we get into chapter 3, 9, just in case unbelievers are reading this and are like, I'm neither one of them. That doesn't describe me. God, you can't put me in a box. I'm not a pagan or religious. Paul says, okay, guided by the Spirit. Well, then who needs the gospel? Everyone needs the gospel. Because I'm, I'm about to summarize you and everybody now in chapter 3. Lychus, licentious, also the moralist. But if you don't think you're them, chapter 3, starting at, let's start at 10b through 12. Just in case you're wondering, number C, everyone. This is what it says. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So whatever category you don't think you're in, that still covers you. Who needs the gospel? Everyone. Everyone needs it. So Roman numeral three, how does the gospel work? Led on to this a little bit about faith already, but how does the gospel work? You can go ahead and put it number three. That's in the end of chapter three. This is how it works, if you will. You know, works and, and scare quotes, air quotes or whatever they're called. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. So it's not through law keeping. The righteousness of God, here it is, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We've already unpacked what that means. So the way that it works is through faith. Further, it says in 24, we're justified by his grace as a gift it's a free gift. You cannot earn it. You cannot ever do enough. It's always, always, always intended to be a free gift for you. That's crazy. You should be ashamed of that, Paul. I'm not ashamed. Because I, if it's not a gift, then I'm going to hell forever. So I'm not ashamed of it at all. And then further, as it gets to uh, verse 26, where we see here, this, this is where this gospel has been shown to us it presents us the righteousness at the present time so that God is just. In other words, a judge, if a judge really did that, if a judge looked at a guy and goes, you're guilty, bang, innocent, the family is going to have a conniption fit, right? What? How could you do that? You can't let this guy go free. He, X, Y, Z, against my family. How could you do that? You're not a just judge. That would be what they would say against the judge. And so if God just says, hey, you're, uh, you're, you can, you're free to go. I'm just going to call you innocent even though you're guilty. You would all look at God and say, you're not just. But what he did is he said, instead of you, I'm going to have my own son come and he's going to sit there and I'm going to give all the punishment to him and he's going to go to the cross and die. And so you get to go free. Therefore, I'm still a just judge. But by sending his own son, he's not just the just judge He's also the justifier. He's the one that did it. That's verse 26. It was to show it is righteous at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. So as it said in the video, the judge stands up, Jesus removes his robes and shows you all the scars that he took for you and says, 
I paid the price for you, and you can be clear now if you'll just believe. That's how the gospel works. It's through faith. It's a gift. Abraham is going to be really mad at me regarding Roman number four. This is it. Number four. How did the gospel begin? Romans four. It started with Abraham. That's it. Number five. Um, it kills me. It kills me. I can't even go into four. But that's all I got for you. It started back in Abraham. Really with, you know, Genesis, the proto Anyway. Roman number five. Here we are. Sorry, Abraham and Paul. Uh, Roman number five. What does the gospel give us? What does the gospel give us? Well, We've already said a couple things as we've looked in chapters one through, well, sorry, Abraham, four. Um, <laughs> maybe three. As we looked at one through three, it's definitely given us two things. We talked about the fact that it's given us forgiveness of our sin and brought us here, but not just forgiveness of our sin, uh, the cleansing, the, the clean slate, but also now the righteousness of God. So the gospel gives us forgiveness of all your sin limitless forgiveness of all your sin and a declaration now that just as righteous as Jesus was, think about how righteous and pure and innocent and perfect Jesus was. That's what you are. But also it gives us a couple other things as it says it in five. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It gives you peace with God. Now, you might not realize that you needed peace if if you weren't you know, aware that you are a complete enemy of God. But that's what it tells us in chapter 5, in verse 11, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So we were enemies. Think about, let's try to modernize it. Think about the, the current situation in the Middle East of ISIS versus you know, everybody they're trying to kill. They, they think that they're absolute enemies astronomically worse was your condition to God. And you were wrong and he was right. That's how much of an enemy you were to him because of, and mine, willful rebellion against him. Just willful, don't care what you say, rebellion, I'm going to sin whatever I want to do. And then God says, and I'm going to put forward my son and now you can have peace with me, with, with God. I mean, think of somebody, you, you have a, huge dispute with now and there's seemingly no peace ever i'm never ever going to be reconciled to that person it's just so hard you're reconciled to god that's one of the things that the gospel gives you god the next thing through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace oh man that's such a good word access into this grace. I talked about it a little bit before, a couple weeks ago, that it's not like God's this far off guy and, you know, if I can just get to the mountain here, I'm close and that's good. But instead, because of the grace, we have access straight to him. The, The Old Testament, they referred to God as Adonai, Yahweh, Lord, King, Ruler. And then Jesus came in the New Testament and flip the categories on how to even refer to God. Call him Father. What? I'm going to use familial words, family words to talk about God? I'm supposed to call him Lord, King. And you're saying, call him Father? Think about that word, Father. You know, Abba, Daddy. That's access. It's not like 
far away and big and huge and I can't get up to you. Instead, the gospel brings for us peace with God and then access to our Father as a son and daughter. You're not a slave. You're not a servant only. You're a daughter. And maybe that's been jaded by your own father, but he's a perfect father. You have access as a son and daughter. Another thing is, which is right there in verse 2, access into this grace which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You no longer have these selfish notions of wanting the glory because you know, like I, I mean, I am painfully aware that I'm, I'm really not all that. Nothing, nothing, nothing to see here. Keep moving, right? And you joyfully love the fact that there's nothing to see here and it's all to see there. So one of the things that you get is now you have hope in the glory of God, not yourself. I get now that he gets all the glory and I don't want it. I get hope in the glory of God. You get hope in the glory of God. You love that it's all about Jesus now. This is great reason to worship. Not just for the next 15 minutes in song, but as you go to speak to your spouse, your, your roommate in a Christ-like way today, to worship that way, to think about those people that don't know Jesus this week and tell them about Jesus, to worship in that way. Think about this. This is what was true of us. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, we were enemies, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through whom our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's Romans 5, 8 through 11. Reconciliation. The gospel, what is it? It's all those things we looked at in verses 16 and 17. It's for everybody. And it brings these amazing things to you. So let's stand and give him the glory and worship because of what he's done. Let's pray. God, thank you for your amazing, amazing, amazing gospel. And I pray that no matter who we are, whether we think we're the rebellious, wicked sinner, or the religious moralist who thinks our good works save us, that you would help us see that neither one of those are things to hope in, but only this alien, foreign, imputed, given righteousness of God that we can receive by faith and faith alone. Be with us now as we worship. And I pray that the truth of the gospel overwhelms both believer and unbeliever. And if there's anybody here that's not a believer in Jesus, that they would come to know Christ today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.